0: Season 4, Episode 2, Surrender, Donald. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. I'll be drawing on some documents in this episode, but this isn't one where I'm going to take a long look at any one document in particular, although I do have a a rather lengthy transcription we're going to go through. Um, instead, this time, I'm going to summarize what's been happening in the January 6 cases, uh, mainly against Trump and his criminal network, as we are moving very rapidly, and everything is happening everywhere, all at once. And yet, you wouldn't know this from the media, right? I mean, old habits die hard, and some of the news has been uh, eclipsed a bit by the news coverage of the 2024 Republican primary... I mean, old habits die hard. And so, again, because various candidates were at the Iowa Fair, and there was a debate, um, there's this instinct, this vestigial need to engage in horse race coverage, because there's a debate between some of the contenders, not the leading contender, but some of the contenders for the nomination, and so they're just doing one of their favorite things, engaging in horse race election coverage. Who's ahead? Who's behind? Who's likely to do well in the debate? Um, who did well at the debate? Who's going to pick up votes? Who's going to lose votes? A just nonstop, breathless coverage of the Republican 2024 primary when we've had the President of the United States, a former President of the United States, uh, arrested in Georgia, and a mud shot taken, along with 18 of his co-defendants. And so, I'd like to begin this episode with a bit of an advisory, a little bit of what I think is true about the ongoing coverage of the 2024 primary. The Republican 2024 primary doesn't matter. The debate didn't matter. And this is a waste of time and journalistic resources. The 2016 and 2020 elections, taken together, were an electoral realignment. One that's changed the Republican Party for generations. For people who aren't familiar with what a realignment is, or for whom it's been some time since they took uh, introduction to American politics, you should know that this stems from the literature on in political science on party systems, uh, particularly V. O. Key's 1955 A Theory of Critical Elections. That is uh, the work that began this whole area of the literature in political science. Now, it's true this is an older area of research, And it's one that has had detractors, especially the last couple of decades. Uh, But nonetheless, there's a rare instance in political science research where you've seen uh, empirical research and theoretical research actually gain mainstream traction. So I'll go over briefly what the idea of a realignment is, because you hear this word used in the press a lot, but not a lot of people explain exactly what it is. So first we have to begin with the basic idea of party systems. Sorry, I'm going into lecture mode kind of automatically. Party system is basically the concept that there are enduring political coalitions that are characterized by certain fundamental political issues that recur election after election, election cycle after election cycle, and they are also characterized by parties that contest elections based on these coalitions within the electorate and that these are largely stable coalitions, but nonetheless there are identifiable shifts when we can see that the party systems change, that the, there's a feedback loop between the electorate and party elites, and the issues change, and the demographics change, and the coalitions across the country change. So party systems change because, for example, one party can disappear to be supplanted by a new party, as happened with the Whigs, who were supplanted by the Republicans, or more commonly, in our system at least, because demographics change, and the issues that are most salient change with them, Um, and also because political elites act strategically within the party system to induce change, as we saw with uh, Nixon's Southern strategy, which took advantage of the disaffection of the George Wallace crowd with the Democratic Party's support for civil rights, and flipped the once-solid South into a Republican column for, well, ever since, generations, right? So, over 50 years. That was part of the shift from the Fifth Party system that took place with the New Deal coalition, the electorate, to the Sixth Party system, uh, what we might call roughly... Now, the same uh, alignment we had during the Reagan years and mainly thereafter. Now, this party system, the 6th, lasted up until the Trumpist realignment that created the 7th party system. So, we've had a realignment, and it is still very recent. Now, historically speaking, we had been overdue for an electoral realignment. And it's also true that realignments are something that usually attracts more attention from historians than political scientists, in part because it is usually easier easier to recognize them after they've happened than before they've happened. Uh, so, there, I mean, really, there's something you see in retrospect. I mean, yes, it's a political science concept, but really, um, it's kind of the, the history of our politics. And, of course, people project this out into the future, and will we have an alignment? But, uh, by and large, this is something that we see retrospectively. So... Most realignments in the history of the United States have been along regional lines and have largely been a result of various policies to do with race, i.e. slavery, secession, reconstruction, civil rights, and so forth. So underlying demographic changes have been a big part of that story. The increase of deaths of despair recently, for example, particularly among the white working class. The increased diversity of millennials and Gen Z. Or are aging into the vote, you know, well, millennials certainly, but Gen Z, aging into the voting age population. And the various culture war issues around the LGBTQIA plus community, they've all been playing a role in this ongoing realignment. But, of course, the main driver of change has been the movement of working class white voters, particularly older working class white voters, away from the Democratic Party, and also... Uh, sort of a second-tier change, the increased affinity of white college-educated voters for the Democratic Party. That used to be a solidly Republican group, and it has shifted as well. So Donald Trump was able to exploit the change, and his culture warrior platform, his nativism and demagoguery, were all calculated to appeal to the least class-conscious elements within the non-college white population which is still a huge component of the electorate overall. About 44% of the electorate are non-college whites. And of these, according to Pew, Trump won 64% of the non-college white vote in 2016 and 65% in 2020, which is a pretty solid indicator that nothing will shift this demographic from Trump. And so this is a demographic racial economic, educational mainly, uh, and somewhat regionally defined group that now controls the Republican Party. And nothing is going to change that for a generation, at least. The Trump agenda is baked in, even if Trump keels over with congestive heart failure tomorrow. So I know that that's a lot of words to say this, but the number of candidates notwithstanding, it is the candidate who appeals to this group who will win the Republican 2024 presidential nomination of the Republican Party. And that's almost certainly going to be Trump, unless, you know, something happens to him. Uh, But again, even from running from prison, like Eugene Debs did, right? You know, that is, is certainly at least a theoretical possibility. So, barring death, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, Right? I mean, they already know, like, you know, he could, he could have shot someone, you know, in the middle of New York City, Times Square, wherever, um, and that wouldn't matter. So nothing is going to shift them short of being called home to Jesus, uh, or Satan, whoever. So, again, why, why am I even bothering talking about this? Uh, the media in the Acela Corridor, they're, they're going to spend a lot of time and money following Republican candidates around as they visit diners until next spring, after Trump ties up the nomination. But again, nothing that has happened or will happen on any debate stage is going to matter at all. Again, unless Trump, uh, you know, strokes out becomes a, a paraplegic or something, you know, nothing is going to matter in that regard. So, why are they doing this? I mean, this is basically... Zombie political coverage. Uh, We no longer have a, a Republican Party that has meaningful primaries. Instead, it is one where the outcome is predetermined thanks to this alignment realignment that they have had, and particularly the association between one major demographic group within the Republican Party and one candidate for public office who is determining everything completely everything down to school board races has been nationalized under the banner of MAGA, Make America Trumpist Again. Now, we know there's going to be no meaningful Democratic challenge to Biden in the primary in 2024, again, unless something drastic happens there. So the Republican primary is where the press thinks that the ratings are. Um, so, but yet, again, none of that matters. Pro- Republican primary doesn't matter, you might as well turn off the coverage, change the station, listen some, to some music, touch some grass, do something, pet your dog, um, then follow the Republican primary coverage, because none of it actually matters. Um, and people used to use a, the, the phrase kabuki theater to refer to this as an empty symbolic process, but today, of course, we know that kabuki is actually culturally significant to Japanese people. So, we shouldn't use that phrase, nonetheless. It is an empty, symbolic process, this horse race coverage. It is zombie coverage. Utterly meaningless because the outcome is already dictated by the primary constituency of the Republican Party in the electorate, the least class-conscious elements of the white, non-college demographic, to include, of course, all the George Wallace people and their descendants, the people who've been voting Republican since at least 1980. So, there might as well not have been a debate. There's no debate. The debate didn't matter. The Republican primary itself doesn't matter. And even Trump being remanded into custody wouldn't change any of that one bit. So, let's move on to some other developments. Now, there's a sense in which the lead development should be the Fulton County indictment of Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants. But I'm going to go in a different direction here. I've already been reading enough indictments uh, and analyzing them in the podcast. Um, factually, I believe it it follows the January 6th report pretty closely, although there are a lot of particulars with regard to the uh, Georgia defendants, the fake electors, the people who are stealing voting machines, the people who are engaged in threatening Shea Moss um, and Ruby Freeman. Uh, those people, you know, more specific. I mean, they're mentioned in the report, but again, uh, a very, very good job of laying out that indictment. Although I have no desire to read it on the podcast. Um, now, like I said, well, well the nice sec- if you're going to read anything, the the main section where they describe the overt acts. That's great. Read that. It is chronological and actually will help you um, sort of parse out the, the the theory of the case in Georgia and how these developments occurred. So. Taking that as read for a moment, uh, the most important development to my mind is that Trump volunteer attorney and key fake elector plotter Kenneth Chesabro, I'm going to say Cheesebro, but it's really Chesabro, has been identified in the crowd on January 6th, shadowing Alex Jones j- during the January 6th insurrection. Now, this was re- first reported by CNN, based in no small part, i.e., mainly, On the work done by Open Source Intelligence Sleuths, thank you again, as always, for your service. The appearance of Cheesebro in the footage on January 6th is hugely significant. Regular listeners to the show will know that I've had my own theories regarding many of the links between the attacking mob on January 6th and the Trumpist campaign and the Republican Party. Now, again, briefly recapitulating, I don't think it's an accident that Avery McCracken the homeless man who worked for Lauren Boebert's congressional campaign in 2020, was arrested for his involvement on January 6th. I don't think it's an accident that Trump State Department appointee, Federico Klein, was charged and convicted of assaulting law enforcement officers on January 6th, and that his attorney, Stanley Woodward, is the same attorney who has represented Trump in the stolen documents case, his co-defendant, Walt Nauta. I don't think it's an accident that L. Brent Zeeker Bozell IV, son of Media Research Center L. Brent Bozell III, has, sorry, Media Research Center founder L. Brent Bozell III, made his way into the Senate chamber on January 6th and adjusted the cameras away from the dais while he was there and also appeared to be on the phone with someone unknown uh, while he was performed before and after Uh, these acts. So, many of the people in the sedition hunting community, people who are in a position to really evaluate this this evidence, have concluded that the entire attack was a hierarchical and planned out affair, with a functional division of labor and a command structure leading all the way to Trump himself. Now, there's a theme here that I explored early in the podcast, Season 1, Episode 5, Grand old party animals which explored that you know the Trump elected officials, the relatives of sorry the Republican elected officials, their relatives, um, various people who are employed in sort of you know the influence regime, uh, sort of you know lobbyist adjacent, political activists, those kinds of people. Um, and I might add that since that time, the linkages have only grown greater. There have only been more of these kinds of people who have been identified, charged, and convicted. And so, again, the presence of Kenneth Cheesebro in the crowd isn't shocking. There are a lot of people like that there. But none really quite in such a position to be one of the uh, mean central plotters around Trump. His actions in the, in the mob are therefore legally significant and strong evidence that the fake elector plot and the capital attack were directly linked. I've hinted before, that there's good evidence to suggest that um, you, despite the fact that there were plans that predate the fake, fake elector scheme uh, with regard to political violence, even on January 6th, nonetheless, I think that a lot of this evolved or almost organically out of the failure of the fake elector plot. And this was you know, their plan B with regard to the, the, the fake elector plot. And, you know, the failure of the court challenges, the failure to take it up to the SCOTUS, the failure of the plans to pressure governors, the failure of the plans to pressure uh, general assemblies and state legislatures. All that failed. This was the, the plan that they were going with. And Ken Cheesebro was there to help make it happen. The entire point of the Capitol attack was to delay the certification of the electoral ballot slates from the states, thereby possibly also giving Trump a pretext to use emergency powers to overturn the election. That's why you have Jeff Clark mentioning the Insurrection Act in emails. It's also uh, an effort to pressure members of Congress, state legislatures, Supreme Court justices, trying to give them all a reason to intervene on behalf of the Trump campaign. So, it makes some sense that organizers of the coup attempt would want to closely monitor the action on the ground. But what's really gobsmacking to me about Teesbrough's presence is that he wasn't just acting as a random MAGA enthusiast engaging in sightseeing and taking selfies, but rather that he attached himself to Alex Jones and shadowed him uh, Jones around the Capitol. Remember that is important because Jones was a stand-in for Trump. They had a, there was a provision, basically, you know, a contingency a few days before. They're like, well, we might want you to go to the Capitol and lead. Uh, the, the the crowd uh, to the Capitol, and then that was enacted kind of at the last minute, the night before and that day, uh, that Jones was definitely lined out. Be you know what Trump can't make it. Secret Service won't let him go. You're going to have to be the guy to uh, wheeze as you lead them up the stairs. So he was basically you know the alternate, the sort of stand-in, and um, again why? Well, he was someone who was acting as a rallying point for the mob. So, Alex Jones and his movements around the Capitol were absolutely pivotal on January 6th. So, Jones, of course, pleaded to the Fifth dozens of times in his committee testimony, uh, at which, by the way, he was represented by Norm Pattis, the attorney Norm Pattis, who also happened to represent who? Joe Biggs, a former employee of Alex Jones and one of the leaders of the Proud Boys on the ground on January 6th who the government is currently seeking to send to prison for 33 years after his conviction for seditious conspiracy and other charges. Look forward to that next week. Now, Alex Jones worked with Cindy Chafian and Caroline Wren in the lead-up to the, out January 6th, and was always included in the speaker's lineup, and, if the government's questions are at least to be believed, um, in his transcript, Alex Jones' transcript on page 20, Jones was the person who was responsible for getting Roger Stone to agree to be closely involved with January 6th. So, it is strange that we commonly see Stone, Flynn, and Bannon linked as the key ringleaders on January 6th, but Jones isn't usually mentioned in this context, even though the evidence is that Jones was at least as involved in any of those three uh, is certainly compelling. And I you know I think you could expand that out, of course, as I've mentioned before, to Peter Navarro, you know, instead of just these three guys, you know, maybe expand it to five, uh, add in Alex Jones and Peter Navarro. I think there's a good case to be made um, with regard to their activities in regard to planning January 6th. Jones again uh, was he was key in promoting the Ellipse rally. Uh, he did so on his show on December 29th, 2020, and Jones was at the Willard possibly staying there with an InfoWars employee, one Rob Dew, D-E-W, in the federal suite. That's from Jones' transcript on page 27. Alex Jones also claimed on his show on January 7th that he had been informed by the White House on January 3rd that it would be him, not Trump, who would lead the mob from the Ellipse to the Capitol on January 6th. That's on page 33 of Jones' transcript. And, of course, Jones helped to arrange for a $50,000 donation from Publix heiress Judy Fancelli to fund the rally and associated events. So, and again, I'm sure most of the listeners of the podcast know Jones is absolutely central, and that's not even inclusive. Um, That's just, you know, I'm not even mentioning uh, the actions of his associates. And you could do a lot just talking about what Alex Jones' involvement on January 6th was. That's just a a brief recitation of his role in the run-up to January 6th. And on January 6th itself, Jones leaves the the rally at the Ellipse before Trump is even finished speaking and walks with Ali Alexander to the Capitol. And once there, he meets with a tall, middle-aged man in a red MAGA hat, Kenneth Cheesebro. Now, Capitol Hunters, you may follow their account on Twitter, has posted uh, one of their very thorough timelines detailing Cheese Bros activities with Jones at the Capitol on January 6th. As always, I'll link to that in the show notes. Part of what's so remarkable about this is that there's this group of people around Jones, um, and their identities, movements, and activities is one of the most studied elements of the January 6th attack. And yet, Cheese Bros identity was only just discovered. Um, so it's an interesting question. Why, you know, why is that the case? I mean, once people realized who this man was, his activities took on more significance than they had beforehand. Um, he just, in some sense, just looked like another person until you know who he is, right? You know, how many middle-aged men in MAGA hats were there? Um, how many of them were holding up their phones and doing other stuff like that? But once you realize this Kenneth Teesbro, oh you can look at his actions in in greater detail. Um, I mean, you can see that, you know, he's filming, uh, possibly live streaming Jones' activities and movements, and possibly messaging other plotters. Um, When Jones is speaking, he appears to be responding, uh, at least via facial expressions, uh, to his words. Um, And so, you know, there's a number of interesting kinds of ideas about what his role there would have been. Um, I mean, one thing, you know, obviously perhaps a conduit to some war room somewhere, and we don't know any of that information. So, again, what was Jones doing? Jones was leading the mob around to key locations during the attack on the Capitol. Uh, he was essentially using the promise that Trump would eventually show up in these locations as bait to lure the crowd to follow him. And he used this... Uh, to especially move around to the east side of the building. I know some people, if you haven't visualized what the Capitol looks like, the, the north-south axis is the long axis of the Capitol. And so the, the west side, where much of the fighting occurs, especially in the lower west terrace tunnel, um, that's the side that's facing toward the ellipse. The east side of the building is the side that's facing more roughly uh, more toward the Supreme Court. And... The crowd sort of naturally wanted to go to the west side because it's closer. Jones was bringing the crowd around so that they would completely encircle the Capitol building. Uh, makes sense, right? I mean, they want to encircle them because, hey, they want all those lawmakers inside the Capitol. They don't want to leave any escape routes. And they also want to be able to compromise all the officers who are in the building engulf and encircle them. So that's clearly what Jones was doing. So when Jones leaves the Capitol with his entourage, which includes Jason Scott Jones, Tim Enlow, Michael Codry, Ali Alexander, Owen Schroyer, um, Cheesebro is right there with them. So Again, significant. So what was Cheesebro doing there? I mean, as I mentioned before, it was Cheesebro and Mike Roman who are the main plotters responsible for the implementation of the fake electors plot. With Cheesebro drafting the documents and mainly handling the legal issues, although there were other lawyers involved, Uh, and Mike Roman whipping the votes, making sure that all the electors were in place, and handling the political end of things. Now, we've known from very early days that Roman was in D.C. on January 6th because he had posted a picture taken at the Washington Monument on his Twitter feed on January 6th. And if you had asked me, ex-ante, beforehand, uh, I would have said that out of the two of them, Cheesebro or Roman, definitely Mike Roman would be the one who would be on Capitol grounds with Alex Jones. Like, if they needed a man in the mob to keep them abreast of what was going on, I would have picked Roman. Uh, I mean, he is a career, lifelong, political dirty trickster. He's worked with different kinds of goons, Working as poll watchers, Uh, he headed up the Koch brothers and intelligence unit until that was disbanded. This is a guy who will do anything for money, and when you want someone to do something that may be ethically questionable and uh, you know might not want traced back to you, uh, this is the guy you hire, right? He is a dirty trickster. So, to my mind, it was a bit of surprise. Um, that Roman, there's no evidence, at least yet, to indicate that he was on Capitol grounds on January 6th. But rather, Cheesebro was on Capitol grounds, and not merely on Capitol grounds, but with Alex Jones for over an hour, after he lures the crowd around to various key locations, uh, such as the Columbus Doors, uh, in order to sort of shepherd the attack on the Capitol. Um, Cheesebro, again, I would have expected him to be in office somewhere, his office in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, which is where he does his legal law work. Uh, Maybe the war room at the Willard. Uh, But have him on the ground on January 6th with Alex Jones is something quite extraordinary. Now in his hearing testimony, Cheesebro told the committee that he had withheld certain documents from the committee because of attorney-client privilege. But there's no legal rationale for him, again, to be on capital grounds or on restricted grounds with Alex Jones on January 6th. That's not part of a legal case or anything of the sort. There's this odd sense in some of the reporting, um, still, that Cheesebro isn't important enough to be a main conspirator. But, of course, he was. I mean, it's been adequately documented. Same is true of Mike Roman. Um, if you listen to last episode, you know, uh, again, Cheesebro and Roman are five and six. Uh, pretty clear in the in the federal case that you know they and again if you've read the documents they are absolutely central. They are the ones who are key to the fake elector plot, and the fake elector plot itself is absolutely key to understanding what happened on January six. So even though Cheesebro tries to claim attorney-client privilege for everything, in fact he sent so many emails to so many different people, um, the committee has most of his correspondence in the run-up to January 6th, including his emails with Eastman, because Eastman, of course, was conducting his part of the coup plot, at least partially, using his Chapman University email address, and Chapman University produced all those emails, and so everything was, which he is cc'd and Cheesebro has cc'd uh, went back and forth to Eastman, and so the committee has all that, and of course the DOJ has all that. Now, the status of Cheesebro, even as a Trump attorney, is somewhat dubious. Um, doesn't seem to be any payment, you know. Uh, he's, I guess, pro bono? We don't even know. There's, I believe, no retention letter. Um, one way to ascertain whether or not Kenneth Cheesebro was actually an attorney with the Trump campaign, of course, would be to ask the person who was acting as the head attorney for the Trump campaign whether or not Cheesebro was on the team. So, that person would be Rudy Giuliani. So, what did Rudy Giuliani say? Well, the committee asked him this very question. Question. And this is from Giuliani's transcript on page 72. Question. Do you know a person named Ken Cheesebro? Answer. I may. I know a lot of people, but the name doesn't ring a bell right now. Question. Okay. And I'll spell the last name. It might be called Cheesebro too. It's C-H-E-S-E-B-R-O Does that ring a bell? Answer. I'd be more likely to remember it if it was Cheesebro. But I don't, you know... When I say I don't remember it, please understand, I know a lot of people. And there are times in which I say I don't remember, and then I see a picture of me with them. But I don't remember. That name does not... Like if you said, you know... Do you know Boris Epstein? I'd say yes, but if you tell me I do know him, I don't. I don't know if I know him. Odd turn of phrase there. They ask him again. Uh, they ask a, uh, so they ask Giuliani again about Chesro on page seventy-three of Giuliani's transcript. Question, but do you now that you see this memo with? Kenneth Cheesebro's name addressed to Judge James Truppis, do you recognize the name Ken Cheesebro? Answer I still don't. I still don't recognize his name. That's Giuliani's page, transcript, page 73. All right, one page later, again, um, the committee staff ask Giuliani about the now infamous Cheesebro memo. Answer. Well, first of all, the memo is absolutely attorney-client privilege. It's election strategy, and I mean litigation strategy, for possible litigation or representation before the state legislatures. And so I would raise the attorney-client privilege with that. But I can tell you that the name Cheesebro still doesn't ring a bell. Maybe it should. Giuliani, page 74. I mean, how waggish. He's being here. Maybe it should. Maybe I should recognize it. I don't know. Yeah, but definitely, you know, it's attorney-client privilege even though I don't even know the guy's name. On page 79, they asked Giuliani again about Cheesebro, this time in the context of another memo, this one regarding the so-called President of the Senate strategy. Answer. That would be privileged. Question. Privilege as a work product or a communication that you had? Answer both. Question, are you saying that because you believe Ken Cheesebro was a, sorry, are you saying that because you believe Ken Cheesebro was part of your legal team? Answer, I have to assume he was. I mean, he's giving us legal advice, I just don't remember him. Alright, so, uh, again, that's Giuliani's transcript. Page 79, really extraordinary. They asked Giuliani four times about Cheesebro And four times, he denies knowing Cheesebro. That's actually one more time than St. Peter denied knowing Jesus in the Gospels. little fun fact for you there. So, Giuliani wants to have it both ways, right? He wants to say he doesn't know Cheesebro, but also that Cheesebro must be a part of his legal team, despite him not knowing who it is. So, if Rudy Giuliani is heading up the Trump legal team, and he doesn't know who a given lawyer is, must that lawyer be part of his legal team? I mean, is the bar so low that you can be granted attorney-client privilege on the basis of a few emails offering advice? Um, that's that's where Giuliani wants the bar set, at any rate. All right, so recall that Teesbro uh, sent his President of the Senate email directly to Giuliani on December 13th. So, again, this is the one where, you know, He's president of the Senate. He has ultimate authority to, you know, not merely open the ballots, but to count the ballots and to rule. Um, that's basically this strategy memo. I know you, if you're like me, you've probably read uh, hundreds of these very different documents. That's the president of the Senate email. Uh, it's, it's an important piece of evidence in the January 6th case. Um, again, he Giuliani had this email, this important message, this important bit of strategy that you know is so important. It's clearly privileged, but not important enough that uh, Giuliani recognizes the name of the author. Now, again, despite whatever cognitive issues Giuliani may have, in this instance, I think he's clearly just lying. This is a man who lies like a rug, as he admitted in the Shamos and Rudy Free, Ruby Freeman civil case, right? He admitted, flat out, lying there. Uh, You don't get to have it both ways. Either you don't know who Cheesebro is, or he's a member member of your legal team, but you can't claim to not know him and also claim that he's a member of your legal team, particularly when we know that he sent at least one email to Giuliani. All right. So, if he's a member of the legal team, Giuliani says he is, even though he doesn't know who he is, What's he doing at the Capitol with Alex Jones? If the ca- attack on the Capitol wasn't an outgrowth of the same effort to subvert democracy that Cheesebro engaged in with his fake electors plot, why didn't he go announce the violent, denounce the violence while he was there at the Capitol with Alex Jones? Why not just go to the press and publicly state that he and other people in the Trump campaign and legal team working to overturn election results had nothing to do with the attack instead of taking the Fifth Amendment when the committee asked him directly about those questions, right? He didn't denounce the attack, he just took the Fifth. Um, you know, And he never went to the press and said, we had nothing to do with it, right? Um, so, you know, that is and ought to be highly suspicious. You can't be a member of the legal team and a member of the mob and not have anyone ask questions about this. So, if the committee had realized that Cheesebro was actually with Jones at the Capitol when they interviewed him, I bet there would be some very different additional questions. So, as it stands, this becomes yet another overt act in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy to obstruct an official proceedings. So, congratulations, Ken Cheesebro, you were probably only ever going to be disbarred or maybe discharged with conspiracy to commit fraud and fraud, but now you seem eligible for account of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Now, of course, if you follow the podcast, um, I've taken great pains to acknowledge the debt that we owe to uh, volunteer open-source intelligence community, uh, people whose work has formed the basis of so many prosecutions in the January 6th cases. Probably the majority of defendants whose identities were unknown and have since been identified um were identified by members of what's commonly called the sedition hunting community. I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but it's hundreds at this point, uh, including uncharged people. And even for those people who weren't identified by the volunteer open source intelligence community, um, they, they, none, they nonetheless have given the government uh, additional evidence beyond identification. And in fact, in many of these cases, they have received additional evidence um, from... Uh, volunteers looking at these angry bearded men assaulting police in sometimes grainy and blurry video. So, it does raise the question of how it is that so many people who were looking for so long missed it until now. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the details, uh, but the fact is that many of the most prolific and accomplished sedition hunters have been looking at the group of men surrounding Alex Jones at the Capitol from the very beginning. Uh, you can look for it all on Twitter. Love is there and it's publicly available. So a lot of attention was paid to Alex Jones and his movements and activities, Ali Alexander's, all the, all the others who formed the nucleus of that group of uh, sedition VIPs. So again, the question is, why is it no one knows Teesbro until now? And the answer simply seems to be that no one was really looking for him. Has his disguise, oddly enough, put on a MAGA hat, in that crowd, you're, you're kind of anonymous. Um, there was really nothing to go off of. You know, and again, I imagine probably most people thought he was at his office in Cambridge working on some memos or something. You know, no one really thought to look for him in the crowd until, uh, really, the second Trump indictment. Oh, sorry, the third Trump indictment, January 6th indictment. So... Um, you know, I mean, I personally, I would have never thought to look for him on capital grounds, but somebody did. Thank you for your service. The the CNN article really seems to imply that this is all a function of their reporting. Uh, I assure you that's not the case. Um, you know what? I, I think at this point it's more useful, perhaps, um, you know, to work with journalists and let them take credit, um, You know, rather than having, you know, all these stupid questions. They're like, who did this? Why are they doing this? You know, it's like, well, they're doing it to protect democracy, but you know what? Um, Yeah. At any rate, it's truly remarkable to have such a significant identification by whomever um, of the leader of the fake elector plot on Capitol grounds with Alex Jones on January 6th appearing to live stream or record Jones's activities and possibly communicating with other co-conspirators. And that video has been there all along, but had escaped notice. And again, it makes sense no one would have looked for Cheesebro until now after he's been put in the spotlight by Trump's January 6th indictment. In the over an hour of video of him at the Capitol, he looks just like another MAGA type in a MAGA hat, and his actions only seem suspect, again, when you realize who he is. And unlike, say, Alex Jones or Owen Schroyer, Cheesebro isn't a massive online personality, and it doesn't really attract, you know, he didn't really do much to attract much attention to himself uh, at the Capitol, other than to uh, be in Jones's entourage. So, where are we at? I think this is probably the most significant identification of uh, anyone on Capitol grounds to date. It demonstrates a direct linkage between the fake elector plot and the attack on the Capitol. The movements of Alex Jones and his entourage around the Capitol were not accidental. They were seemingly designed to guide the mob toward encirclement of the Capitol, and Cheesebro was all part of that. And of course, like any many answers, this raises further questions. Um, who was Cheesebro relaying information to? Why was it so important for him to be at the Capitol there with Alex Jones on January 6th? Part of what Cheesebro may have been doing was to try to keep Jones on message by speaking with him at various instances in between the the points where Jones rants to the crowd. Um, If the whole point of the attack was to delay certification in order to buy time for the plotters to pressure the Supreme Court, state legislatures, governors, and others, then it would have been important to keep Jones at least somewhat on message. That's no easy task. He's apt to go off about, you know, Uh, various space laser conspiracy theories, and other tinfoil hat things, and they needed someone to actually have some credibility. Uh, I want to actually thank the listener who offered me that insight. I think it's a useful one. Part of what Cheesebro was doing there, kind of like coaching coaching a witness, he was there to keep Alex Jones sort of on target, not just uh, on capital grounds, but on message as well. Now, I've noticed in previous episodes that the Capitol attack seems to have been a kind of a test of judgement for what we call sedition VIPs. For every Ali Alexander and Alex Jones who were there on Capitol grounds, there were several others who found reasons to be absent, right? Roger Stone opted to get out of town on January 6th, Enrique Terrio elaborately arranged to have himself arrested on January 5th, rather than be part of the Capitol attack on January 6th. Nick Fuentes marches with his Groypers, to piece circle, and then leaves. Gives a little speech and leaves, right? Because he knows he doesn't want to get arrested either. But Cheesebro, he's right there with Alex Jones. Um, and Jones, of course, is effectively acting as a stand-in for Trump. Now, Cheesebro must have felt, whatever his job was, it was very important to fulfill that job Um, That he was fulfilling on January 6th. Or else he just has extraordinarily poor self-control for a Harvard-educated attorney. Now, one Sedition Hunter I reached out to on this question for a comment had only this to say, which I thought was amusing. Ooh, cheese bro, you're in trouble! End quote. I agree. Yes, Ken, you're in trouble. And this is also something that just really demolishes any notion that this was a spontaneous riot and not something deliberately planned by the same group of co-conspirators who sought to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in so many different ways. It's yet another overt act in furtherance of that conspiracy. All right, so now we return to the Fulton County indictment. Um, I think this is, you know, what a state-level prosecution of what Jack Smith's case would look like. Trump is indicted with 18 co-defendants, some of whom are most certainly also targets of the federal investigation, but also many others who probably wouldn't be or won't be federally prosecuted. In addition, there are 30 other individuals who are described as part of the corrupt organization that was the Trump plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Giuliani, Meadows, Eastman, Jeff Clark, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Ken Cheesebro and Mike Roman were all charged. And many have noted the irony that the indictment is a RICO case that includes Giuliani, who's one of the prosecutors who'd made RICO a household word. Because this is a state-level case, it doesn't include some of the figures who are certain to figure in Jack Smith's eventual prosecution of this same corrupt organization, but as it pertains to Georgia, Willis is swinging for the fences. One of the allegations I was particularly glad to see was the Coffee County breach, which I've covered in an earlier episode. The breach was made possible by criminal local Republican officials, and it's similar to cases in three counties in Michigan and one case in Florida. This was clearly a national effort, and so we may see some eventual federal conspiracy charges in this part of the plot. One of the most bizarre parts of this is that all five of these breaches took place in jurisdictions where Trump won the election handily. So, it's strange to think that they could prove anything. I don't see how they believe that they could make a case proving that there were irregularities involving voting machines in Fulton County, based on examinations of machines uh, in Coffee County. Right? That doesn't make sense. Um, they were not conducting their investigation based on the substance of their own allegations, but rather based on where they could corruptly gain access to voting machines. I suppose that the idea is that they were just trying to uh, you know, concoct conspiracy theories and uh, you know, weren't bothered with the idea that their conspiracy theories should make some kind of sense. If you're alleging irregularities, With voting machines in Fulton County, have a look at the machines in Fulton County, not Coffee County. So, really, uh, again, bizarre. The Georgia indictment is very detailed, and is also worth reading just for its summation of the facts. Particularly, the overt acts and furtherance of the conspiracy, which are not limited to acts that took place in, or involved, Georgia officials. Once again, I'm not an attorney, but if it was in the jurisdiction of Fulton County, it got charged. And if not, it was simply counted as yet another overt act. Also, because it lists these acts chronologically, it's useful as a timeline of the conspiracy, uh, and this conspiracy is included in uh, count one of the indictment. There are a total of 161 overt acts included by the conspirators uh, in the racketeering organization in furtherance of the conspiracy, beginning with Trump's speech on November 4th, 2020, in which he falsely claimed victory in the presidential election, and ending in September of 2022 with two separate acts of perjury by Georgia defendants testifying to the Fulton County Grand Jury. Of course... Trumpists have responded to this by claiming that many of these acts are not, in and of themselves, crimes, and that many of them, the many false statements, for example, are protected by the First Amendment. This is, of course, absolute malarkey. A great many of the acts described are crimes, and they are charged as such. So, they're talking about speech, but if you look at the actual indictment, there's a lot of crime going on, including these counts, influencing witnesses, Solicitation of false statements and writings. False statements and writings. Solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. Filing false documents. Forgery in the first degree. Conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree. Impersonating a public officer. Conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer. Conspiracy to commit false statements and writings. Criminal attempt to count commit influencing witnesses. Conspiracy to commit solicitation of false statements and writings. Conspiracy to commit election fraud. Conspiracy to commit computer theft. Conspiracy to commit computer trespass. Conspiracy to commit computer invasion of privacy. Conspiracy to defraud the state. And perjury. So, for most of these crimes, there are actually multiple uh, different counts of the offense. So there are 40 counts in all. That is a lot of crime. And I really appreciate the amount of work that went into this indictment. Uh, A lot of the way it really is laid out, reminds me of some of the best January 6th indictments in these seditious conspiracy cases. Part of what really stands out is that most of these crimes don't rely on any new or strange theory or new application of an existing law. These are bread bread and butter crimes that were committed in Georgia, and many of these same crimes were committed in other states as well. Fake electors? That's impersonating a public officer and conspiring to do so. The computer breach, that is computer theft, computer invasion of privacy uh, when it comes to the voter data, and conspiracy, and theft. The fake elector certificates, that's part of a conspiracy to defraud the state of Georgia. So the crimes described are straightforward, bread-and-butter crimes, and also evidence of the racketeering organization. You do need a rather complicated flowchart to discover who's charged with what, and the evidence is going to have to be presented, but much of this evidence is of course already public. For example, the Trump-Raffensperger call, which was part of a conspiracy to solicit violation of an oath by a public officer. Yeah, there are a lot of charges, and yes, there are many defendants, but the individual crimes don't look like they're difficult to prove. The indictment is really only daunting because of its scope. In case anyone doubted the ability of Fonnie Willis and her office, This is really proof that any such doubts were unfounded. This is a winnable case, and Willis has taken pains to charge as many of these offenses as possible. Now, in Fulton County, Cheesebro has asked for an October 23rd trial date, and this has been granted. So, he has a right to a speedy trial in Georgia, and he has been granted a speedy trial with a trial date of October 23rd. Moreover, Sidney Powell, has also asked for a speedy trial date. So, it looks like probably the most likely outcome is that they will just merge Powell's case with Cheesebro's case. I don't think they're going to want to try 19 separate cases with all these different dates. Now, there's a lot of talk about, well, tactically, is this, you know, what does this mean? Cheesebro's an attorney. Powell's an attorney. Are they being clever? Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to work out, uh, you know, either to the advantage of Cheesebro or his co-defendants. Yes, it will provide uh, the people who have a later trial date with a preview of the case against him, but remember the substance of this case is already there in the indictment. This isn't a talking indictment. This is a screaming indictment. Uh, We also saw something similar in the Oath Keepers and Proud Boy cases, where they had to split the defendants into groups, simply because there were so many of them. And in the end, it actually didn't advantage the group that went later in any meaningful sense. The government still won its cases against the second tranches of defendants. So, the court is going to have to have a hearing presumably to work out the court dates for all these defendants, and it may just be that they're going to invite other defendants in the conspiracy to try to join this earlier trial, assuming that the proceedings for Cheesebro and Powell are merged, which again, uh, seems likely. In addition to this, another motion uh, down in Georgia is that uh, Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark, David Schaefer, and Sean Still have all filed to have their Georgia cases transferred to federal court. Now all four, uh, three of these four cases so far have been denied. Now these motions have been covered pretty extensively, uh, although for some reason this coverage didn't mention that it is actually very rare for this kind of appeal to be successful. If you are charged in state court, it is actually very unusual for you to be able to get your case transferred to federal court. If a a state, if the prosecutors, want to transfer a case to federal court, it can and does happen. It happens quite a bit. It happens a lot, actually, for budgetary reasons, right? A lot of times there are things uh, like firearms offenses, drug offenses, that can't be charged federally, and there have been a number of states, I'm thinking of South Carolina, uh, that have done this in order to try to keep their prison budget down. Uh, Deferring to federal prosecution happens in many other states. But nonetheless, what's really going on here is that, you know, if the defense wants to have their case tried in federal court rather than state court, but the state court doesn't want it, what do you think the judge is going to do? The benefit of the doubt in this instance is really going to go to the state. It's going to, There's burden is going to be on the defendant to prove that there is a substantive reason for them to be tried in federal court instead of state court. These kinds of transfers are very rarely granted. There's a reason why very many of these motions are not filed. Uh, this is not something that's filed often and because it's not often granted. If the state wants to assert jurisdiction, the judge is usually going to respect that because that's how federalism works. Meadows has also uh, asked that his charges be, um, the the, the, car- the charges in Georgia be dropped, um, because he's argued that the supremacy clause means that the case should be federal, and that he was also acting in performance of his official duties as White House chief of staff. And so executive privilege and immunity applies. He's doing his public functions and necessary functions of his job. Therefore, uh, he is uh, completely immune. Now, this isn't actually as trivial an argument as it might seem at first, but again, I doubt that this is going to prevail. As always, I'm not a lawyer, but in the performance of the functions of his role as chief of staff, Meadows isn't supposed to engage in even legal partisan political activities much less illegal partisan political activities such as pressuring a state official to violate their oath there's no presidential duty to be re- reelected that's not a thing moreover uh, this is kind of a slippery slope right i mean given taking taking this to its logical extreme it would mean absolute criminal immunity for all members of the executive branch so long as they could devise some tenuous relationship between their crime and their official duties and the fact of the matter is that the Chief of Staff is a position that's not created by the Constitution, and the duties of the Chief of Staff are really not formally spelled out anywhere. Um, so it'd be, you know, it would seem to be a, an open invitation to criminality for the Chief of Staff to let him define his own job responsibilities with the expectation that he has absolute criminal and civil immunity. That would be a very far-reaching grant of immunity that's not based on any real claim in the Constitution or the U.S. Code, just basically on a policy created by the executive branch over time, which the executive branch could change. So, I don't think he's going to be able to use any sort of governmental immunity claim, because, again, he was engaged in campaign activity. And not even legal campaign activity, illegal campaign activity. Activity that is certainly not covered in his job responsibilities, or his official duties in any capacity whatsoever. Mark Meadows knows this, his attorneys know this, and hopefully the reporters who are covering this uh, know it as well. This is not a serious argument. It's not frivolous, but it's not a case that Meadows is going to win. Now, I'd also like to take a little bit of time to address the possibility of stochastic terrorism from Trump. Uh, This past week, the defendants in the Fulton County case were ordered to surrender and postpone All 19 of them, including Trump, did so. Um, Now, of course, you know, they they could have not posted bond. Uh, There was one of them, uh, Mr. Floyd, uh, who had had an interaction with FBI in which he appeared to have assaulted them, who was not granted bond. Uh, Everybody else was granted bond, and they were able to bail, you know, get their mugshots shots, and uh, pay their bail, and go on their way, with the exception of Mr. Floyd from Blacks for Trump. So bond amounts range from $10,000 all the way up to $200,000 for Trump. And um, apparently he ordered a bail bondsman to... Uh, he, he arranged that through a bail bondsman, which is weird, because he's going to wind up ultimately paying a fee for that, whereas if he just put up the cash... He's a billionaire. What's $200,000 to a billionaire? I don't know. Pretty strange. In any event, Trump faces 12 felony counts, and these were bonded at $10,000 each, plus $80,000 for the RICO charge. Here's the uh, conditions that Trump's bond order contains that I think uh, are, are something that seems relevant to me at the moment with regard to the danger posed to the community by Mr. Trump. Quote, the defendant shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co-defendant or witness in this case or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice this shall include but is not limited to the following a the defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any co-defendant the defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any witness, including, but not limited to, the individuals designated in the indictment as unindicted co-conspirators, individual 1 through individual 30. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of, of any nature against any victim. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against the community, or to any property in the community. The above shall include, but are not limited to, posts on social media, or reposts of posts made by another individual on social media. 5. The defendant shall not communicate in any way, directly or indirectly, about the facts of this case with any person known to him to be a co-defendant in this case, except through his or her counsel. So, it is a condition that Trump not make direct or indirect threats of any nature against community or any property in the community, including, quote, Posts on social media are reposts of posts made by another individual on social media. Now, Trump threatens people on social media every single day. It's become his entire personality. And it seems almost inevitable that he's going to violate his conditions. In the January 6th cases, courts have been reluctant to revoke bond. And I think that's in no small measure to the political sensitivity of these cases. Federico Klein, for example... Uh, mol- violated the conditions of his release multiple times without any real consequences whatsoever. So, I, and I, again, this this has been rather alarming. Um, we've got multiple fugitives, for example, in the January 6 cases. Trump is no ordinary criminal defendant. Uh, Trump has goons, and they have a long track record of, you know, threatening to kill the vice president bringing guns to President Obama's neighborhood, as Taylor Taranto did, attacking the FBI in retaliation for the Mar-a-Lago search, um, threatening the judge in the January 6th case, Judge Chutkin. So, in the latter instance, in the, that case, the defendant, one Abigail Jo Schrei of Houston, uh, left threatening messages in which she used the N-word addressed at Judge Chutkin and said that Judge Chutkin would be killed if Trump did not win the 2024 election. So that's a threat. And the idea that there's no linkage between Trump and the people who are issuing these kinds of threats or engage in acts of political violence at this point is absurd. So closer to home in the the Georgia case, District Attorney Willis has herself faced threats that include racist epithets. And the Fulton County Grand Jurors in the case have had their addresses posted online And a variety of threats have been directed against them online as well. So, Jack Smith and Judge Chutkin um, really haven't come out yet against anything that Trump has done uh, with regard to his case in D.C. That's up to them. But, you know, again, Trump continuously uh, refers to Smith as deranged and has called Judge Chutkin biased and unfair. Um, For some reason, he doesn't doesn't say anything about Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida, who's only served for six months. Um, But, well, sorry, 18, I think now. But in any event, you know, this is someone who is threatening officers of the court, threatening uh, witnesses. He's saying that certain people should not testify. Um, You know, the language in his bond order is very specific, and it gives every indication that, you know, his reputation precedes him. They very specifically said that he can't even repost something that appears to be threatening uh, from another account. So, again, if you look at what he does in social media, on Truth Social, that's all he does. Oh, in unrelated news, Trump is apparently now on X. Uh, He submitted his mugshot to X. Again, very concerning. And it is, uh, you know, it would be quite a thing if... The bond was revoked for Trump, but, you know, every indication is his behavior is not going to change. Now, there's always a time lag between some event that Trump has called down for vengeance for and uh, whether or not there's attack, right? So, for example, the attack on the FBI in Cincinnati took place on August 11th, 2022, three days after the search warrant on Mar-a-Lago. Now, Trump has been actively attacking the judicial process on True Social, and he's been carrying on with his usual practice of threatening judges and prosecutors. On August 14th, in response to the indictment, Trump posted, quote, So, the witch hunt continues. 19 people indicted tonight, including the former President of the United States, me, by an out-of-control and very corrupt district attorney, end quote. This is, of course, not normal. This is not a normal thing for a criminal defendant to say about the judge and the district attorney in their case. He's also said, uh, after he was released from being booked, quote, "...what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too." What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. And there's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference." Now again, as I've mentioned, courts are reluctant to subject defendants to pretrial detention uh, so long as they can post bail. But the pattern has been for Trump to be able to sick his supporters on anyone that he doesn't like. And he doesn't even need them to necessarily, you know, he doesn't have to call for the violence at this point. They'll go after Willis and possibly Judge McBurney as well. Uh, so, you know, you know, uh, of course it seems like Trump reserves special treatment for uh, district attorneys who are black. Again, defendants have main, remained at large in many January six cases, despite multiple cal- kinds of violations. I already cited the example of Federico Klein. Um, but, the exception, I think, that is important here is if there are instances of violence uh, or threats that can be directly tied to the case in Georgia. If you have something like the attack on the, F- the Cincinnati FBI office down in Georgia, I think all bets are off. If there's a uh, you know, close proximity of events, Trump calls for violence, and then there's violence, Trump issues a threat, and then someone tries to carry out a threat... Those are the circumstances under which I think that his bail could actually be revoked. Now, in general, I think too much liberty has been granted to January 6th defendants when it comes to pretrial release. Um, And there's one example that has happened recently that I think is uh, worth mentioning at this point. And that is the case of one Christopher Worrell, a proud boy. Way back in October of 2021, Judge Lambeth ordered Worrell to be released after he had found out that the D.C. jail had failed to adequately treat a broken wrist that Worrell had suffered and also withheld records from the court. And so Lambeth ordered an investigation into whether Worrell's civil rights had been violated and ordered that Worrell would be held in house arrest at his home in Naples, Florida. Again, this is for someone who's charged with AFO assaulting a federal officer. All right, so fast forward to August 13th, when the government recommended that Worrell serve 15 years for his conviction in his bench trial, in which, by the way, he perjured himself. So he was convicted of all counts: the felony counts of assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers using a dangerous weapon, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and obstructing, impeding, or interfering with officers during the commission of a civil disorder, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, engaging in physical violence with a deadly or dangerous weapon, and the misdemeanor count of active physical violence on capital grounds. So, that's why he was, you know, they recommended 15 years. So what happened the second week in August? Worrell is facing uh, 15 years. Government has filed their motion. What did Worrell do? He skipped bail. Worrell is now a fugitive. Worrell joins several other fugitives, including Olivia Pollack, her brother Jonathan Pollack, uh, who went on the run very early on. Uh, He's an AFO defendant. Uh, Joseph Hutchinson, and uh, Evan Neumann, of course, who is a fugitive who is claiming refugee status in Belarus. The Putin allied Belarus. I mean, I do wonder if Judge Lambeth now regrets his, theory, his decision to let Worrell go home. But I would offer this as a fundamental is uh, an example of the fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of political extremism. These defendants, Trump included, can rationalize anything, justify anything, in the service of what they see is the ultimate political good. There is, I believe, some idea that these defendants are somehow less of a danger to the community than so-called common criminals, but the fact is they are more of a danger to the community because they can justify anything on the basis of their political ideology. These are people who are essentially terrorists. Terrorists can justify anything on the basis of their extremist ideology. Ordinary criminals do not pose this kind of danger to democracy itself. And if you are a drug dealer, most parts of the country, you will be denied bail because the courts claim that you will be out there selling drugs in the community unless they hold you. Similar to that, I believe that these defendants pose a flight risk, as evidenced by the fact that we now have four of them who are out running about and are fugitives. Um, That we know, by the way. I mean, there, there may be people who are uncharged, who have decided, in effect, to go underground. Um, we don't We don't necessarily know, but that may be why some people who have, may have warrants that we don't know about uh, have yet to be apprehended. Nonetheless, they are a threat to the community. And the courts need to really take this seriously with regard to Trump and his co-conspirators and all the rest of the January 6th defendants. Finally, yet another story that I think has not received uh, too much coverage. Um, What with everything else going on, that is understandable. You know, Trump's surrender. um, Big news, obviously. And the fact, of course, that he has had t-shirts made up that say never surrender, when of course, in fact, Trump did surrender. That's what we call that. That is a self-surrender. He surrendered, and all 18 of his co-defendants all surrendered. So... In any event, uh you know he sat there, he looked all ticked off um and you know there's now all the mug shots. everybody get their mug shots, yay, but the main thing, hopefully, is that um people who were thinking that Trump might be a viable candidate or that you know some perhaps some of the faith in the that the cult has. And Trump will be shaken by this. I don't know. I you know, I continually have this idea that that's going to happen. It never does. Uh, there's probably just going to be more and more defiance uh, up to and including the day that Trump winds up uh, being car- incarcerated in Georgia state prison or federal prison, uh, whoever winds up getting him first. All right. Anyway, turn to this story because, again, kind of escaped notice. Trump hosted a fundraiser, for January 6th defendants at his Bedminster golf course in New Jersey, two days before he was to surrender. So he was supposed to surrender on Friday, uh, actually he surrendered on Thursday, uh, the deadline was noon on Friday, and this was on Tuesday. Uh, so on Tuesday, he held a benefit for the Patriot Freedom Project, which was founded by Cynthia Hughes, who I know I've talked about before. She is the so-called adoptive aunt of Neo-Nazi January 6th defendant, Timothy Hill-Cusinelli. And, by the way, that's not alleged neo-Nazi defendant, right? This is the guy with the Hitler mustache. This is the guy you see heiling. This is the guy who wound up getting in trouble at his job for continuously engaging in uh, various racist uh, comments with his fellow employees. So, Hill-Cusinelli, by the way, is scheduled for release in February. So, how time flies... Um, So he's going to be out in the community. Uh, Wonderful news there. Now, Trump had had an earlier fundraiser for the Patriot Freedom Project in June of this past year, and he also pledged to make a contribution to the group. Um, This bizarre rant that he made, over 12 minutes long, was posted to Twitter, and I don't think everything in it uh, really got the attention that it deserves. I think partly is because that Trump really is no longer speaking in complete sentences. It's impossible to actually punctuate his sentences. You have no idea where a colon or a period or a comma goes. They simply just go on and on and on in this endless litany. So, nonetheless, he makes some interesting claims in his uh, 12 and a half minute speech. Uh, again, uh, involving, you know, I, I assume there are people who are out on bond and family members of January 6th defendants. And, of course, he is himself now a January 6th defendant. So it's probably not surprising that he is uh, ramping up his work on behalf of January 6th defendants, because suddenly he gets indicted for January 6th, and now he's all sympathetic uh, to these lackeys, these lickspittles who did his bidding. Amongst his claims, by the way, that he makes is that, surprise, surprise, January 6th was done by BLM and Antifa. You heard it here first. Now, again, this is a fundraiser for for these defendants. If January 6th was done by BLM and Antifa, and these people are January 6th defendants, then aren't you really doing a fundraiser for January's, for BLM and Antifa? I mean, they never seem to extend this logic, you know. Like, oh, why aren't these people arrested? Why is every single person that you've arrested somehow not a member of BLM and Antifa when, in fact, uh, everyone, you know, you're claiming that this was done by BLM and Antifa? Uh, again, just, you know, they know that that's not true. I mean, in, in this sense, it's like, I'm sorry, even, even Mike Lindell is going to have to believe that this isn't true because you can't point to any specific January 6th defendants. You know, um, they'll point to John Sullivan... Right? They'll point to Ray Epps, but that's about it. You know, you look, it's Christopher Worrell, BLM, or Antifa. No, he's a patriot. Uh, we're not talking about him. You know, um, so again, just absolute and utter nonsense. What I did was to transcribe his speech. Uh, so if you don't want to hear Trump's words, you can just cut it off now. Uh, I will see you next time. Uh, but at least I'm not going to actually subject you to the Trump audio. This is, uh, as far as I, I tried to make a word for word transcription. Uh, Trump's speech is no longer particularly clear. There are instances where it's inaudible because the applause of the crowd is uh, too much. Nonetheless, uh, this is, uh, is I think, close to a word-for-word transcription of what Trump had to say at Bedminster when he was raising money for the January 6th defendants and the uh, Neo-Nazi Patriot Freedom Project or Neo-Nazi adjacent Patriot Freedom Project. All right. And you'll just you can you can imagine Trump's voice if you want or not, but here's the thing again. The comments quote: "I just want to thank all of you for being here. You've been so incredible and so brave. What you're going through, nobody can even imagine. They do it with me. They do it with all of us. They're sick criminals. Sick. That, that by the way, that's what he said. He said criminal. I, I rewound it several times. Criminal. Uh, he does that a couple times. We all do, right? When we speak, you know, but." Trump a little bit more than most people at this one. They're sick. There's something wrong with them. You go out to Portland. A friend of mine lives in Portland, by the way, leaving. They're all leaving. And the streets, you can't even... uh, There's no stores. If you have a store, you have a 2x4 with plywood storefront, because after it was wrecked 11 times by these people, by these vandals, by these Animals out there, these store owners, if they stay open, which is very few of them, they just put plywood up they don 't put up any storefronts anymore. no one does anything to these people. They took over Seattle, they took over Minneapolis if we didn't send in the National guard, you wouldn't have them in Minneapolis anymore. Nothing happens to these people, and uh it's a disgrace. You have police officers, firemen, you have teachers, you have uh electricians you have Great creeple and uh they've been made to pay a price that is very unfair in many cases not in all cases but they have other people BLM and Tifa and you don't hear about them why aren't they there because they were involved everybody knows they were involved I saw the news of one guy, the head of one of them, and he said a lot of bad things, but nothing happens to him. Nothing happens to him. It's a disgrace what's going on. You look at the Biden family, the Biden crime family, that's what it is. You see Hunter, what happened with Hunter, all of the different things he was so guilty of. Uh, We have to congratulate him because of what a disgrace. But people say that they got it. Uh, we're not taking it much longer, we're going to win an election in 24. Applause. Um, and with every, every applause, by the way, there may be certain segments where um, he says something and I wasn't able to make it out because he's drowned out by the applause. Uh, there's The person who's recording this is obviously in the crowd, and so the applause is much louder than uh, uh, Trump, who is nonetheless speaking with magnification. I actually think bigger than if we did it the more traditional way, Which we did. The election was rigged, and it was stolen, and it was disgraceful, and that's the one thing that they don't want to talk about. When you go and you have problems, is that Jeff over there? Yeah! You are fantastic, inaudible. You are brave, and smart, and brilliant, and he's wonderful. Applause, inaudible. I just told somebody about you. Really good, fantastic job. It'll all come back. It's all coming back. We have to be strong. We have to be tough. Uh, we have to win back our country. We have to take back our country. We're going to do it, uh 2044 election. Applause. It's going to be the most important election, you know. I tell all these people, they all come in and they all want to help the biggest people, some of the biggest people, the biggest law firms, the biggest lawyers. I say, listen, I don't need any help. I don't want any help in campaigns. We have so many people that are going to vote for us. I want to guard the vote. When the vote comes in, that's the term I'm using. Guard. Guard the vote. I don't need the vote. I need guarding the vote. Because what they did last time, we were winning Pennsylvania. We were winning like nobody ever saw. 10 o'clock in the evening, they were calling up. Sir, I'd like to congratulate you. I got a call from a rhino. They called and said, About 10 o'clock in the evening, Sir, I'd like to congratulate you. Well, you know, he did that because he thought we won, and he thought it would help him, wouldn't help. A rhino is a rhino. Am I right? Applause. I got a lot of calls from a lot of people that we're going to be expecting and they're all calling and congratulating and I said oh let's see and all of a sudden votes started disappearing and bad things started happening and I think we can't let that happen again the country won't be able to take it the country won't be able to take it so I just want to thank everybody I want to congratulate you all uh... I may sit around and listen to Steve Bannon Because he's been really exceptional, very smart guy, and they went after him too. They went after him, and they'll always continue to go after him. We have to win in 24. We'll turn around the country, you know? We were turning around the country. We were energy independent. Think of it. Gasoline at $1.87. We were independent in energy, and we were soon going to be dominant. We were getting ready to flip where we were going to be making so much money because our liquid gold is an industry so big so big using his accordion hands here so big so powerful we were going to be bigger than Saudi Arabia and Russia combined i got anwar approved in alaska anwar is the size of and maybe bigger than saudi arabia ronald reagan couldn't get it done bush of course couldn't get it done laughter but uh reagan tried everybody tried they couldn't get it done I got it done. One of the first things they did was terminate Anwar in Alaska. The size of, I just think of that. The size of Saudi Arabia, maybe bigger, but we were making so much and we were going to make so much that we were energy independent in six months. We were going to be energy dominant. We were going to be selling to Europe. We were going to be selling to Asia. We were going to be selling to everybody. And then COVID came in, and we did an incredible job in getting the country back and in saving the country. And we actually, when we unfortunately handed it over, had to hand it over, but when we handed it over with that Horrible, horrible election, that horrible way, that election like a third world country. We were like a third world country that night, and that period of time, because there's not longer. We used to have, accordion hands, an election day, now we have an election period. Some of these things, because they say, eh, give it a extra five days to vote, or vote early if you want. It's a disgrace. We're like a third world country with so many different things. Our airports, our elections, so many different things. But we were going to make so much money, we were making a lot of money. And we were just starting. We were going to pay off debt. And we were going to reduce taxes further. And it was all beautiful. It was all a beautiful thing. And then we had that horrible result. I got a phone call today. They said they'd like a comment because China, just you probably talked about it, somebody had to mention it, like Alex somebody out there mentioned it. But China, you know, has just decided they are going to have a training facility, which is uh, that they are going to have soldiers in Cuba, in Cuba. Now, I had a very good relationship with President Xi. We made an unbelievable trade deal with President Xi. But once COVID came in, that sort of interrupted everything in my relationship. That sort of was too much. That was a stretch too far. That cost the world 50 trillions of dollars and millions and millions of the world, millions of lives, we did an incredible job of, never got credit for that one I tell you, we did between the therapeutics and all of the Regeneron, all of the things we did, the ventilators, we became the king of the ventilators, we made them for the whole world. We had virtually none. By the time we were finished, we were making them for the whole world. But we did a great job. We never got that credit. I don't want that credit. It didn't matter because if you look at the polls today, nobody sees polls like that. John McLaughlin told me today. Great guy. Tony Fabrizio. Great guy. They're saying they haven't seen polls like this for a long time for anybody. And we have to guard that. The polls. Uh... We do well in the polls. Don't forget, I don't talk about polls that we do bad in. Laughter. If I was doing badly, I don't talk about them. Don't talk about them. But we're doing better than, probably better than I've ever done. And I think it's close. So we're going to have a tremendous victory. You know, the one good thing, if there's anything good, is we have... I believe it's 15 million people coming in from many, many countries. Not just the four that we consider neighbors, but many, many countries. And they come out of the jails and prisons. They come out of mental institutions, in staying asylums, and they say, please don't use that name, but it's true, in staying asylums, the silence of the lambs, right? Laughter. Laughter. They come out of the insane asylums. They're dumping their people into the United States of America. It's a disgrace what's happening. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. But we've got to get them out. We have terrorists coming in. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. There's no checks. There's no balances. There's nothing. We have no idea who they are. But it's a very bad situation. Very dangerous for our country. We're going to turn it around. And we're going to make America greater than ever before. Applause. So with all of that, I just want to thank you for being here. It's an honor. I'm going to make a contribution also. Applause. There have been few people that have been treated in the history of our country like the people that you love, like the people that are going through so much and in so many cases, and we can never say all. We have had some bad, real bad ones there, including BLM and Antifa, but I will tell you there, in the history of our country, a thing like this has never happened. We've become a fascist country. We've become a Marxist country. We've become a communist country in so many different ways. But we're going to take it back, and the good thing, the only good thing, we've seen how bad it is. If we just did it more traditionally, this would be the biggest thing in the history of our country, in the history of politics. This will be bigger than 2016, in my opinion. And I think, actually, even more important now, but we witnessed four of the worst years in the history of our country. We are no longer... Uh, think of it. We get our energy from Venezuela. Venezuela, that's supposed to be the bad guys, right? That's supposed to be the real bad guys, what they did. But we get... Our oil now from Venezuela, and we cure the oil, we refine the oil in Houston, Texas, and it's tar. I don't call it oil, it's tar. It's very, very thick, horrible stuff, and it goes spewing, you know. For all the environmentalists out there, we have clean, beautiful stuff, but we take this tar from Venezuela and we burn the hell out of it. Everything goes into the air. If they're interested in that, and I'm not sure if they're interested or if it's just a great talking point, but what they do, and what they're going to do to this country, we can't let it happen. So they've shown us what happens. We have bad borders. We have high taxes. We have high interest rates. No voter ID. Why don't they want voter ID? They don't want voter ID because they want even 82% of Democrats, the regular voters, the people, want voter ID. But the leaders don't want voter ID because you can't cheat if you have voter ID. It's much harder to cheat if you have voter ID. So, uh, we have a crazy situation. I can only tell you we're going to make this country so great. It's got the greatest people in the world. Applause. Um, He makes a few more comments but they are inaudible because of the applause. And that of course is, those are all words. A bit difficult to understand but I've identified sort of eight themes or eight take home messages from this speech once you take out some of the just randomness about Venezuela and China and some of the, uh, just the filler that he just puts in there that's, you know, red meat, but also at the same time, word salad. Now, the first thing, of course, and yes, I've done a whole episode on this, is the lie regarding BLM and Antifa. And this occurs in a couple of different parts of the speech. So he's there telling the January 6th defendants and their families, and their supporters, that BLM and Antifa were responsible for January 6th. Quote, uh, You have teachers, you have like uh, electricians, you have great creeple, that's why he said creeple, and uh, they've been made to pay a price that is very unfair in many cases, not in all cases, but they have other people, BLM, Antifa, and you don't hear about them, And why weren't, aren't they there? Uh, Because they were involved. Everybody knows they were involved. I saw the news of one guy. Blah, 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 blah. So, again, BLM and Antifa were there, right? Uh, Not the Trump supporters. But, again, if you're, you know, you're saying that, okay, well, they're the bad ones. We don't want to support those people. But uh, everybody else, they're they're Trump supporters, and we want a fundraise for them. Um, Again, it doesn't make sense, right? It it can't be that 99% of them are Trump people, and there's 1% BLM and Antifa, and they're the bad people. But BLM and Antifa are somehow responsible. No, Donald Trump is responsible, and it's just a red herring. He is waving the bloody shirt and saying, look over here, it's a distraction, but of course it's not real. He revises the theme again later on in the speech. He says, there have been few people that have been treated in the history of our country like the people that you love, like the people that are gone through so much, and in many cases, and we can never say all, we've had some real bad ones there, including BLM and Antifa. So, again, there's this idea, once again, Blaming it on BLM and Antifa, which, again, doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to raise money for these people, and yet you're saying that January 6th was done by BLM and Antifa, why are you raising money for them? Which one of them are BLM and Antifa? Can you point them out in a crowd? Can you show us where BLM and Antifa did this? You can't, because they didn't. They weren't there. The second thing that uh, Trump says that I think is interesting and new is twice he makes references to the traditional way. Quote, But people say they did, <clears throat> say that they got it, and uh, we're not taking it much longer. We're going to win an election in 24. I actually think bigger than if we did it the more traditional way, uh, which we did, the election was rigged. So, did it. What does it refer to here? Well, a little little later on, he says, quote, we actually, when we unfortunately handed it over, had to hand it over, but we we handed it over with that horrible, horrible election, okay, here he's talking about the peaceful transfer of power. So he's, I think, implicitly acknowledging that, you know what? They didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. They didn't do it the traditional way. It's a way of reframing it, because of course, Not doing it the traditional way means you try to do it in the completely unconstitutional and unlawful way. So this is his new phrase. It's not, you know, it's not the illegal way, the fraudulent way, it's uh, the non-traditional way. He's just got this non-traditional approach to electoral politics. Um, The second time he uses this phrase is here. If we just did it more traditionally, this would be the biggest thing in the history of our country, in the history of politics. This will be bigger than 2016, in my opinion, and I think actually even more important now. So, what he's talking about traditionally, I guess he's talking about a traditional campaign, right? One where the winner, uh, you know, he accepts the votes and there's, you know, takes the victory, and uh, there's something called loser's consent. The loser consents to the victory. That would be the traditional way. He can't bring himself to say this, but I think this is an implicit promise on his part to say, we're not going to do January 6th again. Uh, which I think, by the way, is an important thing for the Trump, you know, uh, the press to press him on. Of course, again, they didn't pr- cover this press conference, uh, the this, this speech, rather, and I understand why they were invited. This was actually posted uh, on. I think it was Twitter by a Trumpist supporter, um, but again, it, what it, you know? What does he mean when he says the traditional way? Does he mean is he promising not to do another January sixth? Is he promising not to submit fake slates of electors? What is he talking about doing it the traditional way? And I, I don't know if you know this is his addled way. Of He's been talking to someone who's been saying, "Look, you need to promise a return to normality, you normalcy, you need to promise that you're going to eschew political violence and accept the result you now I don't know what that is, right he's just but he's referring to something about how they didn't do it the traditional way, and that was apparently wrong um, and this time they're going to do it the traditional way, so whatever that means. Third thing, and it's, it's a little less important than some of the others, um, but he mentions, of course, Steve Bannon, quote, I may sit around and listen to Steve Bannon because he's really been exceptional, very smart guy, and they went after him too, they went after him, and they'll always continue to go after him. Well, of course, you know, a lot of these are Bannon's people, right, these are people who like Steve Bannon, of course, probably a lot of his podcast listeners, um, And I don't know, but I would guess that uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that Bannon has been promoting in his podcast. If I were Trump, I wouldn't be mentioning Steve Bannon at this point. But you know what? He does. He does mention Steve Bannon at this point. So he's got to throw that in there and show that, you know what, he's still uh, faithful to his old buddy Steve Bannon. Fourth thing he does is to attack early voting. Which again, uh, that was something that they came up. Right? They wanted to throw out early votes. They wanted to say, well, you know, we'll just count the early votes. Or sorry, the, we'll just count election day votes and not early votes because the early votes, you know, those are unconstitutional. They were they modified early voting periods, and that, and that's wrong. Um, and so again, you know, maybe that is part of what he means the traditional way, right? Maybe he means, well, maybe we can have an election without any early votes. I don't know. Most people support support early votes. Um, you know, and traditionally, Republicans have loved absentee votes. It's only been in the last 20 years that they've started to have a problem with absentee votes, except for the military, right? The military are allowed to, to vote absentee, of course. They they have a problem if anybody else uh, does it, which is weird because traditionally, for most of the country's history, they've won absentee votes. They've had a lot of rural voters and elderly voters who have voted absentee and they've had no problem with it. Um, but he says, quote, we used to have, an election day. Now we have an election period. Some of these things last for 40 days, 42 days. Sometimes you don't even know how long they last yet because they say, eh, give it an extra five days to vote, or vote early if you want. It's a disgrace. We're like a third world country. So maybe here, partially, he's also priming uh the idea that if he loses in 2024 it's because there were early votes. And early votes are somehow inherently bad somehow inherently wrong and fraudulent, according to Trump. Um, But again, I don't know if this is something that he's actually given thought to or if he's just still repeating and parroting the same things that were going on inside the campaign back in the fall of 2020. Also, another thing he does, a quick one on this, is that he possibly has an Alex Jones reference in there, right? Because China, just you probably talked about it yesterday had to mention it like Alex somebody out there mention it. But China, as you know, has just decided we we're going to have a training facility, etc., and so forth. Soldiers in Cuba. Now, I also want to mention, uh, there's that one part where he does this call out to Jeff, right? Is that Jeff? Um, and I'm not sure because I haven't seen the, the whole thing, but apparently Jeff Clark also spoke at this event. Um, and so he had nice things to say about this person, Jeff. And so I think that actually might have been a shout-out to one of his uh, unindicted co-conspirators, Jeff Clark, who is apparently also now uh, speaking of fundraisers for the Patriot Freedom Project. And with, with regard to the Alex Jones thing, I can't find whether or not Alex Jones has actually got some uh, theory about Cuba and this training facility. Um, but... You know, because that's ungoogleable, right? I mean, you talk about how many times uh, Alex Jones has said something about, you know, Cuba or uh, China, you know. Um, yeah, but probably Alex Jones there, you know, again, uh, another unindicted co-conspirator. Um, the sixth theme that he talks about that is kind of odd is this bizarre COVID rant. And again, um, you know, Trump, has, is he's all over the board on this, right? Because he can't talk about vaccines with regard to COVID, uh, Operation Warp Speed. He can't talk about that. He knows it. This is the one thing that these kinds of people have booed him on, right? Um, You know, he talks about how they were the king of ventilators. And he leads into this this phrase. I won't read the whole thing. uh, But it really struck me as odd. Um, We did a great job. We never got that credit. I don't want that credit. It didn't matter. Uh, okay, if you don't want the credit for how you handled COVID, then why are you bringing it up, right? I mean, you clearly do want the credit for COVID um, because you're bringing it up. You're talking about it at length, actually. You're calling yourself the king of ventilators, which, you know, can you could work that a couple of different ways, right? Um, but the next thing is he segues right into... How amazing he is doing in the polls, um, and he says quote, uh we do well in the polls. Don't forget, I don't talk about polls that we do bad in. If I was doing badly, I don't talk about them. Don't talk about them. And so again, this is just a frank admission of what he you know, yeah, if he's losing, it's rigged. If he's winning, it's legit. So, I mean, his attitude toward polls is exactly the same attitude toward electoral politics. And just kind of gives away the, the the game right there. Um, it is interesting that in this context, he also talks about Tony Fabrizio. Again, Trump has oftentimes expressed skepticism about polls. Uh, and it's interesting, he brings up Fabrizio here, of course, I believe Fabrizio's worked for him since 2015, and is he an ideologue? Sure, but, you know, is he an actual pollster? Yeah. Um, you know, he actually has a professional pollster that he uses, um, and if, you know, he doesn't believe in polls, why does he have a pollster? Um, you know, Tony Fabrizio is a great guy, uh, his polls are good, any poll that, in which he is losing, of course, he, not good. Right? So, again, a pretty frank admission. And, finally, there is the point he makes about voter ID, um, where he, he makes some claims about voter ID at the very end. Just And these are clearly uh, ad-libbed and off-the-cuff, uh, when he's just listing the, the, quote, awful things about what's happening now in this, you know, economy with record low uh, unemployment and uh, inflation has been uh, beaten back so that is it is basically uh, the, lar- the, the lowest rate of inflation in any in of the large economies in the world but nonetheless, everything's bad right now and one of the things that's bad is we don't have voter ID. Quote We have high interest rates, no voter ID. Why don't they want voter ID? They don't want voter ID because they want even 82% of the Democrats, the regular voters, the people want voter ID. But the leaders don't want voter ID because you can't cheat if you have voter ID. It's much harder to cheat if you have voter ID. Okay, well, first off, I believe it's 34 states actually have some form of voter ID. So he lost the election. Uh, in, you know, a country where most of the states actually already have voter ID. And that 82% figure is just bullshit. Where did it come from? He made it up. Uh, Most recent polling, voter ID, yeah, it's supported by something like 80% of people. No, sorry, that's Republicans. Um, But amongst Democrats, it's actually 53%. So that may be why he says 82%. He's just lying, right? It's only 53% of Democrats. Is that a majority? Sure. And if they institute voter ID, will we, you know, have a workaround in voter drives to make uh, it easier for more people to get their ID and make sure they have their ID, voter ID? Yeah. Are they intending it as just another obstacle to voting? You bet. Of course they are. Um, But again, he's the claims that they've relied upon many, many times have been, the voting machines are bad. The voting machines are bad. But, you know, if... The voting machines, if Democrats control the results in the voting machines, the voter ID doesn't matter. You know, just tack on however many votes you want, because apparently the voting machines are bad. And again, there's no proof of that. There's never been any proof of that. You know, they looked at the voting machines, they couldn't find any any proof of that. Uh, nonetheless, if they repeat it often enough, they believe, and Trump believes, that, you know, it'll work. And it's, it's sunk into the head, certainly, of these Patriot Freedom Project people. Um, but also, like, amongst the, the so-called contested states, uh, Arizona has voter ID. It doesn't have to be photo ID. You can bring in any form of ID in Arizona. And Wisconsin and Michigan both have photo ID. So, in order to vote same day in Wisconsin, Michigan, you have to show voter ID. So, the, some of the states that he claims were fraudulent, in fact, were states where voter ID is already required. But again, fact-checking Donald Trump is entirely pointless because, you know, he doesn't deal in facts. He just deals in lies. And if he repeats them often enough, uh, you know, it becomes true, apparently. But What we've seen here, I believe, is a, you know, a much degraded man, uh, who's haunted by the legacy of January 6th. January 6th is definitely going to be on the ballot. He can't shut up about it because he knows that he and his, the rest of his criminal co-conspirators, uh, committed a vast network of crimes. Now he's been mug, he's as mugshot, you know, and he claims that he doesn't know what a mugshot is, right? You know, that was one of the, they didn't teach me about mugshots. Uh, in the Wharton School of Finance. Okay? Have you ever watched a, t- a police procedural? I know you watch TV, Donald Trump. I know you know what a mugshot is. Again, just brazenly lie. All right, I know I didn't get around to doing the numbers. Um, Maybe that will be the topic of the next episode because they have been on a tear. And uh, particularly among AFO defendants, assault on a federal officer, a lot of those people have been uh, getting picked up. So I'm going to try to actually follow events as as closely as I can. Things are coming fast and furious. As always, I want to thank you so much for your listenership. Uh, Please do like, rate, and subscribe, um, and recommend the show to your friends. uh, If you know folks who might be interested, I suspect that as this goes along, um, there are going to be a lot more people who are, uh, you know, going to try to keep up with things. Uh, with regard to the Trump trials and uh, all of his various co-conspirators. And maybe we'll see something happening on that score as well with Jack Smith looking into his many co-defendants. Because, again, we've got the January 6th case built for speed, um, but apparently some of the Georgia cases are definitely now going to go first. Um, But what we still need to see is really the shoe-dropping on... uh, his other co-conspirators in the January 6th case. So, very much looking forward to that. And until next time, I'm Scott Kuhn, and thank you very much for listening.